1: Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Professor Thomas Worthley. He is an Extension Educator in Forest Sustainability in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at UConn. Good morning to you, sir. And good morning to you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Connecticut is heavily forested, more so now than during some other times in our history. Give us a State of the Trees report. How is their health? What's good? What's not so good in Connecticut?
0: It comes as a, as a as a surprise to many people that the state is as forested as it is. Uh, we have about uh, 50 59 percent of our land areas covered by forest land in the traditional rural sense of what you would consider to be woodland or forest. And another 15 percent uh, on top of that, uh, approximately, is uh, uh, is under a tree tree canopy, um, in what we would describe as our exurban suburban or urban forest, uh, resource. Uh, these are trees along roadways and people's yards in the parks and, uh, uh, in, in, places like that. And so, uh, we do have quite a bit of tree cover, about 75% of the state is under a tree cover of one sort or another. And it's a, uh, it's a valuable resource that we all depend on for, uh, uh, cleaning the air and reducing the noise and, and providing for uh, the, the water that we all uh, uh, depend on uh, coming out of our faucets and in uh, a variety of other benefits that include things like wildlife habitat and recreational resources and uh, and, and things of that nature. Not to mention that we have a, a thriving um, uh, forest products, uh, wood products uh, industry in Connecticut that uh, um, Uh, you know, that employs uh, 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 quite a number of people, thousands of people, actually.
1: But for some trees in particular, it has been a tough, you know, five or or four years recently with first the gypsy moth and then the arrival of the emerald ash borer in Connecticut. Uh, Tell us what trees are affected and what sort of uh, damage you're seeing. The two insects that you have mentioned
0: uh, are both uh, non-native insects that uh, have arrived in Connecticut at various, at different times in the in the past. Uh, gypsy moth has been around for a long, long time. And there are some uh, agents within the environment that uh, most years keep the gypsy moth population in check. Uh, it's kind of naturalized in our environment. It affects primarily oak trees. But when you have just the right conditions the population of gypsy moth caterpillars can explode and uh, they will chew on any virtually anything they find uh, except for tulip trees or yellow poplars as they're commonly known and uh, uh, their favorite species of course is is the oaks Um, uh, and uh, in 2016 and 2017 the combination of drought, which affected a fungus which kills the gypsy moth, allowed for a population explosion in eastern Connecticut of gypsy moth caterpillars, and and the the combination of stresses that included the drought, the gypsy moth defoliations, and uh, several other pathogens that came into the picture resulted in the deaths of many, many thousands of oak trees uh, throughout eastern Connecticut. um, along roadways and in some and in some woodlands, entire stands of oak trees were killed off. Um, many many thousands of acres of, uh, of woodland were affected. The other pest you mentioned, emerald ash borer, is one that we have anticipated for some time. It arrived in Connecticut the first. Uh, um, The first uh, confirmed sighting of emerald ash borer was back in 2012 and 2013, and has slowly spread across the state uh, so that it's found in every county of the state and most towns within the state. And it affects only ash trees. Uh, The larvae of the insect uh, is... Lives under the bark of the tree and chews away at the at the live tissue just beneath the bark of the tree, and and, and uh, feeds on that tissue and eventually, uh, you know, creates uh, galleries under the under the bark and the and the tree can be uh, can be girdled by this activity, um, and eventually the tree dies, uh, you know. So we're we're anticipating the death of most most of the ash trees because uh, uh, we don't have a good. Um, broad-scale control method uh, for um, dealing with the emerald ash borer. Uh, there are some experimental things and there are some um, systemic insecticides that can be used on uh, big trees or ornamental trees or whatever the case may be. But in the woods uh, along the roadways and and uh, things like that, we are expecting to lose most of the ash resource in, in Connecticut.
1: Are pests like this affecting trees cyclical? I I think about all the the street names around Connecticut named after trees that you really don't see in this part of the world anymore. Does this kind of ebb and flow? Well, the gypsy moth certainly does. And, you
0: know, it's much dependent on weather conditions and so forth and so on. The emerald ash borer um, is one that's just— just expanding and expanding, it will eat its way out of uh, out of out of food eventually, and uh, 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 won't be as big of a problem. And perhaps some of the young ash trees that we have uh, in some places where ash has been able to regenerate itself, uh, you know, may uh, may grow up to be stately trees again. But uh, certainly, chestnut trees went through uh, a problem back in the 19 early 1900s. Um, where a fungus came along and you know killed most of them off, but we still have we still have chestnuts in the forest. We still have chestnut trees in the forest. They just don't get to be very big trees. They they grow up a little ways and then they uh, uh, they get sick and they and they die off. So uh, uh, while chestnut is still a component of the forest, we don't get to see very many mature ones. Same with elm trees. Elm went through the uh, the problem of um, Dutch elm disease back in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, uh, we lost most of our large, stately elms. And uh, we still have elms around. There's no uh, no question about that. But once again, they don't get to be very big trees before they uh, they catch the disease and, and die back.
1: Given scientific advancements and you know what you can do to genetically modify organisms these days is there a a chance we we might sometime in the future see large stately elm and chestnut trees again in connecticut well uh there is a there is a possibility yes absolutely um and
0: i emphasize the word possibility uh there's an awful lot of work going on with american chestnut uh, uh, doing various uh, breeding studies and as you say genetic studies and uh, to try to find the, uh, um, the, uh, the genetic code, if you will, that uh, exists in Asian chestnuts, for example, that they're not susceptible to this disease and uh, see if it can be bred into American chestnuts uh, um, uh, to... Uh, to make them more resistant. Uh, so there's experiments going on all the time there are people that have have devoted their entire career to uh uh finding the the solution with respect to uh uh chestnut blight. um as far as elm is concerned uh there's a combination of factors at work there there's a, a beetle that carries the the disease that affects the trees and uh and finding a predator for the beetle or finding a um, you know, some sort of genetic solution that makes the tree resistant to the uh, to the fungus is, you know, is 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 an area that um, more research could uh, could take place on. With respect to emerald ash borer, uh, there are some experiments underway to try to find a a predator that would affect the. Uh, um, the insect um, that would be species, what we call species-specific, that it would only affect that insect. So that if we brought it into the environment, it wouldn't uh, uh, affect something else by mistake. But these sort of biological controls are are under study as we speak.
1: Moving back to the oak trees that have been affected by the gypsy moth. A lot of them are are still standing dead, and and that can pose a danger, can't it? Oh, absolutely. Um,
0: what we'll uh, what we'll see with uh, with standing dead trees is that they'll slowly collapse. And what that what I mean by that is that they will uh, uh, shed their smaller branches first. Uh, smaller branches will decay and drop straight down out of the tree, and then eventually larger branches will. Uh, Uh, will begin to drop out of these trees and uh, uh, for trees that are close to where uh, human activities take place along roadways and uh, in near people's yards and that sort of thing um, uh, it can be a it can be a danger you need to be aware Uh, an awful lot of people are spending time uh, these days uh, you know in an effort to get out um, you know we're all doing some sort of quarantine uh and in an effort to get out many people are going on hikes and on trails and uh, in parks and forests and uh, preserves uh, around the state and um uh they need to be aware that uh, in some places there's quite a number of standing dead trees that dead branches can drop out of those trees anytime um under any conditions uh, not it doesn't have to be a windy day it doesn't have to be a rainy day but uh, that exacerbates the problem but uh, branches can drop out any time and uh, uh, can be very dangerous so they need to have an eye in the canopy as well as an eye on the trail as they as they move along um, the, the towns in the state and the utility companies are uh, um, frantically trying to deal with these uh with these dead trees that are uh uh, adjacent to uh, various forms of infrastructure, you know, the power lines and the, uh, and the highways and that sort of thing, um, in order to uh, uh, avoid potential of, uh, uh, you know, dead trees harming people driving by and that, and that sort of thing. Eventually, a standing dead oak tree or ash tree will, you know, the root system will decay. What anchors it to the ground will no longer be there. And gravity is the law. (laughs) Well, you know, the tree will eventually tip over in the uh, whatever direction it happens to be leaning. And um, that's uh, when it could be the most dangerous, because that's the biggest and heaviest part of the tree and
1: uh, trunk, of course. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Professor Thomas Worthley, Extension Educator in Forest Sustainability in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Connecticut. Now, talking about the the trees affected by the gypsy moth, are all of them that were hit in 2016 and 2017 dead now, or are some of them still dying?
0: Um, there has been some some residual post um, you know post infestation mortality uh, caused by some follow up stresses. Uh, There's a native insect called uh, two-line chestnut borer, for example, that will uh, invade oak trees that are stressed. There are some fungal diseases that will affect uh, oak trees that are stressed out. And so uh, uh, we may have lost a couple. But most of the trees that survived the, the gypsy moth infestation Uh, are doing pretty well now they've all leafed out they have pretty good crowns they're getting plenty of moisture the last couple years and uh, we expect them to uh, to continue to survive Uh, there are a few trees um, that I've noticed in my travels where uh, that were affected by the uh, the gypsy moth caterpillars and they um the, you know, the crowns are half dead, you know, part of the crown died off and, and, and uh, uh, some of the branches remained alive. And these, uh, these trees are tricky too. Uh, so, that uh, um, you know, they're, they're ones that you might need to, to keep an eye on.
1: How big an issue is it of trees getting strangled, essentially, by invasive species? Uh, I think about like, bittersweet for example in my yard has has killed a couple of trees because it's gotten just out of hand
0: well there are a number of invasive species um uh, that are associated with our forests most of them are vines or shrubs uh small shrubs and the biggest problem we have with invasive species is that the deer don't eat them (laughs) And, and uh not that that's funny but uh um the deer you know, we have a very large deer population that eats almost every native, uh, native plant that it can find. And, uh, this includes seedlings of what we would consider to be desirable species of oak and maple and, and that ash and that sort of thing that we would like to have in our forest. But, uh, um, you know, the acorn sprout, the, the, the seedling comes up, the deer browses it off and, um, uh, uh, it, it 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 can't compete uh, with uh, an invasive shrub nearby like Japanese barberry or oriental bittersweet that, um, uh, that the deer don't eat. And so a lot of times these invasive shrubs and vines take over a site and prevent um, native species from growing and uh, and in, and as in the case that you mentioned very often they will get into small trees in such abundance that they'll actually you know pull them down or or, um, or or bend them over or weaken them to a degree that they can't survive
1: talk to us about the role of trees in fighting climate change and the debate that's going on right now well
0: um, Trees, the forest resource in, in itself as a whole is a, um, a vast um, carbon sink. Um, trees pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, during the process of photosynthesis in order to grow in order to create more wood. And as they add a ring of wood every year uh, to their trunks and branches, uh, they store a, an awful lot of carbon and they sequester a lot of carbon um, out of the atmosphere. And the actively growing trees will be pulling carbon from the atmosphere and, and therefore are seen as a part of the, a big part of the solution to um reducing carbon dioxide and therefore addressing climate change issues. Um, in order to do that job, the forest has to be robust. It has to be growing. And um, uh, the debate is whether to um, whether to just do nothing in the forest and let it be and let it uh, take what carbon it will or whether to try to find management solutions that... Um, um, that will help the forest grow better and help to grow large trees that will store lots of carbon. And then uh, whether to utilize those trees at some point, harvest them and turn them into products, long lasting products that will keep that carbon stored uh, over a long period of time. So for example, your, your grandmother's desk or your, um, you know, your floor in your house or your uh, furniture or a, or a railroad tie that lays in the railroad bed for 60 or 70 years, um, is there long enough to grow another tree? And um, um, some of the debate rages around whether it's appropriate to harvest trees and turn them into wood products and or whether to just leave them in the woods and to uh, to continue to try to grow. Um we don't have all the answers to that debate yet. Uh, that's w- another area of research. That's uh, a tremendous amount of research has been done on that. And um, you know, for people who are interested in pursuing that, uh, they can contact me. I can send them some references that uh, uh, would uh, provide for some uh, uh, more detailed uh, information. But uh, we. Um, w- We in the forestry world, the professional foresters feel as though it's appropriate to seek management solutions for what forest we have left to optimize carbon sequestration and storage in a balance with the other uses that we um, put the forest to. And the other side of the question is um, what sort of management is appropriate for helping our forest be resilient to the changes that are coming along? Um, as 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 climate changes, we have more severe weather events. We have more opportunities for higher temperatures and droughty conditions. And will the forest composition change as a result of that? And are there management solutions that we can apply that will, uh, you know, help the forest to adapt, help the forest to be resilient in the face of these types of changes?
1: When we started our conversation, you, you mentioned that. Connecticut was, you know, a lot less forested in our history. I'm thinking colonial times. Are are there yeah. any lessons to be learned when we we cut down so many trees so many years ago? Well, you
0: know, it's it's interesting. You know, probably the the least amount of forest uh, that occurred in Connecticut was in the early 1800s when when the agricultural use of land was at its. Uh, At its peak, you know, they estimate somewhere between 25 percent and 30 percent of the land was occupied by trees and the rest was farm and pasture and villages and that sort of stuff. And um, since that time, the, you know, farm abandonment as as farmers moved to the Midwest where there were better soil conditions that resulted in in the forest growing back because forest is the natural vegetative cover for our part of the world. And uh, if you stop mowing the grass, why, woody vegetation will grow there eventually. You stop plowing the parking lot, woody vegetation will grow there eventually. And uh, it's just a natural way of things. But um, the forest grew back. Much of it was harvested again in the late 1800s and early 1900s to, uh, uh, you know, for for saw timber, but also for uh, the production of charcoal. Uh, at the dawn of the industrial age, charcoal was used in the metalworking industry, and uh, much of the forest was clear, cleared away again at that time. And it grew back. And a lot of the forest that we have around us today is a result of that activity. Um, all the trees grew up at, again at the same time. It was brushland for many years, and then, uh, you know, eventually, uh, eventually, young forest, and then uh, older forest, and the. Uh, 100 to 120 year old trees that we see around uh, in many of the woodlands around the state are a result of that uh, that activity uh, that took place uh, back then what we are lacking is uh, the amount of young forest necessary to uh, replace uh, uh, some habitats for certain animals that uh, that require that sort of habitat or to be the young trees that are growing into older trees that are uh, would be expected to be approaching the end of their uh, natural uh, life expectancy.
1: As an extension educator, what's the the number one question you get asked about trees? The
0: number one question I get asked about trees it's usually it's usually has to do with some sort of uh, tree problem, you know, some sort of tree disease or tree insect problem uh, that I, you know, the people people who call. Uh, out of the blue, so to speak, usually have uh, a tree or a stand of trees that aren't doing well, and they want to know what's wrong and what they can do about that. And uh, many of the uh, uh, many of the problems we see are related to some of the things that we've already uh, discussed. When I have the opportunity to walk around the woods with woodland owners, um, it's the questions are more about how do they. Um, how did they accomplish the things they need to do to, uh, to, to continue to enjoy the benefits that they expect from being woodland owners in the first place? If a person owns 10 acres of land and they want to um, have enjoyable uh, recreational time in the woods or they uh, uh, enjoyed seeing certain types of birds or, or something of that nature, they would want to do, they would want to know... Uh, what they need to do in order to how do I encourage this this type habitat for this type of bird, or how do I um, you know, how do I go about managing my trees so that uh, I'm getting the most benefit or the most enjoyment from? It?
1: He is Professor Thomas Worthley, Extension Educator in Forest Sustainability in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at UConn. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio.